0: To this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I want to welcome to the show today, regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, and she is one of the representatives from Brattleboro. Hello, Emily.
1: Good morning, Olga. Nice to see you again and as always.
0: Same here. And I want to welcome to the show Reverend Mark Hughes, who is the Executive Director of the Vermont Racial Justice Alliance. And my first time meeting you, Reverend Hughes. So it's really nice to meet you and have a chance to talk to you today.
2: Hey, Olga. It's really good to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Emily, it's good to see you again. So we are going to talk
0: about the second constitutional amendment that's going to be on the ballot in November, called Proposition Two, and it's clarifying the prohibition on slavery and indentured servitude in the Constitution. And if you, uh, Reverend Hughes and Emily, don't mind, I'm just going to take a quick minute to read the the proposition as I found it on the state's website, just so that if listeners haven't had a chance to hear this they kind of have a place to start sure. it, we start with the purpose this proposal would amend the constitution of the state of vermont to clarify that slavery and indentured servitude in any form are prohibited article section 2 article 1 all persons born free their natural rights slavery and indentured servitude prohibited that all persons are born equally free and independent and have certain natural, inherent, and unalienable rights, amongst which, which are the enjoying and defending life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Therefore, slavery and indentured servitude in any form are prohibited. As I understand it, Emily, that is the language that people will see on the ballot that they will be voting on. Is that correct?
1: Yes. And folks might already have their ballots in their mailbox. I had a phone That's call right. yesterday and said, I got my ballot. And I don't know what these proposition things are. Tell me. So ballots might, if you're listening to it now, you might want to open it up and look at it so you can follow along with Olga. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing to sort of clarify, this is a removal of language that we're talking about. So Thank the you, other yes. proposition that, we talk, that we've talked about and we'll talk about more Um, The Reproductive Liberty Amendment is an addition of language, but this is actually a removal of language, and some of that, like there's some controversy to the idea of the editing, the removing part, and so I think that's going to be an interesting part of this conversation.
0: Thank you for that clarity, Emily, really appreciate it. And Mark, uh, Reverend Hughes, so sorry, as I understand it, your organization, the Vermont Racial Justice Alliance, Actually, earlier this year, launched a a campaign, the abolish slavery campaign, to help people understand and vote yes on Proposition Two. How's that going? What kind? What have you been hearing from from folks when you've been talking to them about Proposition
2: Two? Yeah, definitely. And uh, again, thanks for having me. And the campaign is the campaign we did launch it with our partners, our statewide partners, Vermont Interfaith Action. It was. It's kind of like the the. I would call it the the final sprint, if you will. this this is because we're, as you know, we're headed to the ballot. what are we you know inside forty days or something like that? Mm-hmm. However, you know it's also important to to state that we we actually initiated this work. so mm-hmm. this 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 was initiated by us, you know pre two thousand and nineteen. for those who are listening, you should know that you can only amend the constitution every four years. And so this was initiated alongside of PR five in two thousand and nineteen. And it came from our existing work that we're we're continuing uh, that's focused on eradicating systemic racism. Uh, we know that the institution of slavery uh, is um, is actually at the root and at the heart of uh, what we refer to as the uh, the legacy of slavery, the uh, systemic racism. So a lot of our policy work that we've done, from the um, racial disparities in the criminal and juvenile justice system advisory panel to the racial equity executive director's office and uh, health equity uh, policy as well. All of this work is converging in one place. So I just want to be sure that the listeners are very clear about our role in this work and our purpose in this work before I get into uh, any conversation about the launch of the campaign itself. Well, let's actually,
1: then let's start there. Like, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the story? You know, I think we've explained to listeners a little bit previously about how a constitutional amendment process works that you know emerges and starts in the Senate. It takes four years. Folks, it needs to be go through the House, you know, it needs to go through the Senate twice. It needs to go through the House twice and then it goes to voters. But the story of how it got to the Senate the first time and its journey through the state house, I think is an important story to tell. So I would love if you wanted to start with that.
2: Oh, totally. We can do that, too. And, and uh, in addition to the two trips through the Senate and the House, there's also two public hearings, and there's mm-hmm. there's a, a gubernatorial um, constitutional um, duty uh, for a, a proclamation that it would be on the ballot. So so that's really good, Representative Kornheiser, that, that those uh, conversations have been had, because I think a lot of folks thinking could be thinking that perhaps some of this work is just kind of fly by night, or just trying to figure out where it came from,
1: or you know, like they say, I don't really like it. Can you edit it for next year? And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> no
2: It <laughs> doesn't, not doesn't work like that. It doesn't work <laughs> like that. It's, and, and you know, in fact, you can't even you can't even edit it after it first leaves committee uh, in the Senate, folks. From the first time it starts, uh, you know, so there's a lot of there's a lot of nuances. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of rules um, uh, that in the House, in the Senate, and I mean, I'm literally rules. Uh, there's statutes in Title 17 and there's guidance in the Constitution itself in, in uh, chapter 42. So yeah, we got here. There was a long, long path. In fact, what a lot of people didn't probably didn't know is, is we, actually, uh, we actually asked the 2018 legislature to urge the 2019 legislature when they came in uh, to start this work. Uh, at the time it was Tim Ash who was the president pro Tim. They didn't, they didn't like that idea. Uh, we were able to get it uh, intro- at least introduced in the House uh, by Rep- Representative Chena. And, and it, it's today, and it will always be uh, looked back at as a historical document, H.R. 25 from 2018, uh, was an urging of the 2019 Senate to start this work. It never went anywhere at hung on the wall in Sarah Copeland Hans's committee, uh, House Government Operations, and it died. Uh, but you can't take anything away from it. Uh, where we started uh, with this work again is is searching the constitution, searching the statutes, looking for uh, uh, human rights and civil rights protections because a lot of concern at that time uh, with uh, what what the organization that I started, which which is um, Justice for All, a, a C4 organization, is started to work. It was this this was when I actually stepped back from. Cybersecurity work in 2014 after seeing Michael Brown on the ground uh, for about four hours in Ferguson. Uh, that was the uh, impetus for me to start this work, and it started in community and ultimately uh, resulted in, um, culminated in, in 2017. As I said, the RDAP, uh, the, um, that was the first policy. But while that work was going on in, in between that two year period, it's so a lot of stuff happening because the 16 election was huge. We did a couple of public forums: uh, one for the Senate in in uh, Washington, one for the uh, Senate here in Chittenden. So you probably remember the cast of characters. If uh, for 16, a uh, full disclosure, I was a Democratic Party um, figure <laughs> at the time. I was the chair of uh, affirmative a- affirmative actions, and I also served on uh, the um, platform committee. Um, we actually were able to successfully get instituted into uh, the platform, uh, the um, desire uh, to amend the constitution to, to abolish slavery. Uh, that, so that was in the 16, as well as the 18 uh, Democratic Party's platform. Have no idea why they didn't move it over to the 20 platform. Uh, at the same time, leading up to this work, we were able to get um, the full, uh, full endorsement of the uh, League of Cities and Towns. So it was a unanimous endorsement. Uh, the the uh, Episcopal Diocese here, uh, sent a letter over to uh, government operations. So there's a lot of background work going on uh, when this finding um, came. Uh, when we had those um, those panels that I told you about, those interviews with the um, uh, officials in 2016 here in Chittenden, uh, Debbie Ingram was one of the um, candidates. And and oh, by the way, it was probably eight of them, eight or ten of them at the time in Chittenden. Nobody knew that there was uh, that this that this language existed in the Constitution. And we'll talk about that language in a minute. But, um, and and what I mean is, is to Representative Kornheiser's point, there is existing language in the constitution. And I'm gonna gonna, um, just kind of sit with this for a minute. I wanna say it one more time. There is existing language in the constitution. Um, There is existing language in the constitution that provides for exceptions, exceptions. There are three exception clauses that permit slavery. So that is why the work is important as well. So Debbie made a commitment uh, then Senator Ingram made a commitment. She, she said, "Well, I didn't know that was the case, And I don't want to just kind of you know single her out because nobody, nobody uh, you know, we got elected officials all across the state. I remember walking down the street with Jim Condos, and I said, "Jim, did you know?" He's like, "No, uh, T. J. Donovan, Beth Pierce." The list goes on. So nobody has known that this language or has acknowledged that they've known that this language existed in the Constitution, despite the fact that everybody's taken an oath to it. Um, I
1: mean, full disclosure, Olga and I read the Constitution, the Vermont Constitution, aloud last summer on the show um, Mm -hmm. as a way of sort of prepping us for these Mm -hmm. conversations that we knew were coming up this year. And I, have absolutely taken, you know, I had taken the oath before that and it was the first time I had really read it in a mindful way, like mm-hmm. cognizant of meaning and language and everything that came from it. So
2: Yeah. yeah. And it was
1: it was really powerful and like interesting to like when I read pieces and was like, oh, that's where that body of law comes from. And that's oh gosh, that is challenging, that little piece, you know, that piece right there. It's,
2: yeah, it's we, we I mean, there's gonna be a lot to talk about. When the smoke clears, because there, you know, there is, we will discover more and more, and we will begin to unpack what some of this means. Uh, There are other um, aspects of the Constitution which will need to be examined. Twenty twenty three is coming up. Oh, a year! You can introduce a constitutional amendment. (laughs) What's happening next? So, um, so there's some stuff that we will will have to continue to uh, disentangle, to unravel. There's, there, this, what this is, this is the work. This is the baseline work of dismantling systemic racism. Come on, the document was written in 1777. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's gonna be language in there that has been used to build a foundation for statutes and rules and institutions and even the, the framework of the government itself. You know, When you take a document that creates the framework of you know, how elections are conducted over a 200 plus year period, there's no wonder why you walk through the state house and mostly all of the pictures in there look like the same dude. The sternest,
1: most disapproving (laughs) old white man telling me I do not belong there. That is what those pictures do. Mark, I
2: want to ask you- God bless you, Madeline. God bless you, Madeline Cunin. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: So what I'm hearing from some folks is just a very, like, what feels to them like a very open, innocent question, I think, Mm. um, which is, you know, There's, the question is phrased as, there's never been slavery in Vermont. Vermont's never allowed slavery. Why would we, why do we need to do this to the constitution? And what I say to folks is there has been slavery. There were, you know, Vermonters enslaved folks and there were enslaved folks living here in Vermont for many, many years, even after this constitution was passed and it's still there in our constitution. But I think folks are wondering like, what is, I guess I just wanna ask you like from your perspective and from the perspective of the, you know, the broader alliance that you represent, what's the value of changing this document mm-hmm. given that you know there's no slavery or enslaved folks in Vermont right now, which is I think still an arguable point, so.
2: Mm. I mean, besides you know, moving from a, a constitution that clearly has three exception clauses that permit slavery uh, to a constitution that explicitly prohibits it. Besides that, <laughs> so so yeah, I would say um, the, you know, there's going to be some folks who just d- don't understand. You know, perhaps they're not embracing what it means, what a what a constitution means, what it means. You know, perhaps when we start to consider uh, the gravity of what that document represents, folks will. Uh, Embrace that a little bit more. I think, you know, part of, let's jump around a little bit here because, um, first of all, I, I don't understand why we would want to argue, um, have, you know, engage in an argument where we know that prima facie, the, the, the premise of the argument is, is invalid. So to, for a person to come to you and say, well, slavery's never existed in Vermont, that's just not a very good argument to get into.
1: People know. I mean, I really like the folks I'm talking to. I think they generally, genuinely, do not know Vermont's history.
2: Right. That piece of Vermont history, and you know, so this, this would, this wouldn't be the point where we're going to begin to teach them that. Uh, (laughs) So this is not, this is not that. So hopefully, they'll have the opportunity to go and do some, some research. There's also a lot of folks who don't know what it takes to actually amend to, to amend the Constitution in Vermont, which is one of the most difficult states uh in the, in the union but back to that question because i think it's a i think it's a good question i think it's a dumb question i, I don't i don't think it, i mean with nothing with all due respect to you uh, because again you know the, my first response is oh besides removing an exception three exception clauses that exist in our constitution that have always that have always existed and replacing it with language that makes it very clear that slavery and indentured servitude are prohibited you mean besides that Um, But I would also say, you know, this, this, the whole idea of, you know, it also proves a certain level of insensitivity, I think, uh, because, you know, the institution of slavery is really what you want to talk about here and what it represents to us in America, uh, because the institution of slavery we know has created this, Mm -hmm. has contributed uh, and has almost primarily been you know, formed this political and economic divide along racial lines, which has created the badges and incidents that we experience today, which we refer to as systemic racism. So when you look at the, the, the actual institution itself, why, would, why on earth would we want anything in our constitution that even represents it? Why? Uh, and moreover, why is it that a person, could, how is it that a person could be so blind that they could see that the that leaving that language in the Constitution could be so offensive you know it's it's kind of like it's kind of like the guy saying, "I don't understand why I can't wave my confederate flag so th- the thing the thing is is that you know again the Constitution itself you know we shouldn't have to give this lesson, but I guess, suppose we do it's you know what's in the Constitution you know it's not just what folks take an oath to it's the premise of every law when you walk back in the state house uh every Everything that you guys try to move out of that committee or 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 out of that uh, chamber, the litmus test is that Constitution, and and I think the other thing that we must understand is is that everything that any law that is challenged, the litmus test, you know, within our judiciary again is the is the Constitution itself. The shortest answer, though, I think, Representative Kornheiser, the shortest answer, it really just comes back to the fact that the language is there. There is a tool that we have to um, to to change that language to make sure that it represents the values of Vermonters, and that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything short of that, I, I think, is is uh, just irresponsible, in in in, in my opinion.
1: I, I agree, and I'm proud that we're doing this yeah. um, for what it means for what Vermonters being able to see themselves in the Constitution, and what it would mean for. The broader meaning making of Vermont law. What do you think this will mean in terms of changes to current law or the future experience of Vermonters?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, another uh, you know another question that that's um you know not a you know I I, I got to be nice to you and I, I don't want to say that was a dumb question but I I, I want to say that it's, it's think about it. Uh, what we know is is that for two hundred and forty five years in Vermont. Well, and
1: I, you know, in my own defense, I, um, I want to hear you saying that, you know, so I don't want to like take over with all my own ideas about why this is awesome. I want to hear from you. And so I'm, you know, well, we'll, some questions that I have my own answers to.
2: Yeah. You don't, you don't need to defend yourself because I'm not going to attack you, but I, but I think that, um, you know, I, I think that what we have to understand is, is that Vermont has never been a state uh, without that language, without, I mean, what we know is, is in in 2000, in 1924, we did touch the article one in the constitution on a constitutional amendment and we changed the age of women slaves from 18 to 21. That's what we know. Uh, What we also know is, is that in 1994, under the auspices of de-gender in the constitution, we went into the constitution and not only did we change the um, gender language regarding males Uh, as it pertains to he, him, men, and so forth, we also find language referred to as freeman. Uh, For those who used to take the freeman's oath uh, to vote, and I know that was a thing here because when I got here in 2009, I took the freeman's oath. So it was a thing, and it it also came, it originated in Title 17 of the Constitution, which uh, is supported by chapter, Title 17 of the statutes, rather, but which is supported by Title uh, chapter 42 of the Constitution. Let me just make that very clear. The Constitution's title, uh, chapter 42, it is articulated in, ch- uh, in, in title 17 of our, sta- our state statutes. So when the governor executed his constitutional responsibilities to make a declaration uh, that this, that this uh, constitutional amendment was on the ballot, he didn't do it just because the statute told him he did it also because the Constitution told him. So where am I going with this? Where I'm going with this is, is in 1994, all of that language, Freeman, was removed from the Constitution except for one instance. And for some odd reason, and I think they were clowning us or something, I don't know why they did it, but um, they made um, the, chap- the title of chapter 42, "Freemen and Free Women, despite the fact that they removed Freeman from the entire Constitution. I don't know why that is. But if there were Freemen, then there must have been not Freemen. In, in our analysis of the Constitution, Freemen were the people who could elect everybody statewide, all, 100, all 180 of you, all six uh, statewide officials, uh, our entire congressional delegation, in every, all 14 counties, the sheriffs, the state's attorneys, the judges, and so forth, and vote for the constitutional amendment in the referendum, such as the one that's coming up right now. That was what Freemen could do. It took until the 2019 and 2020 session to remove the same language from Title 17, 25 years. That's an example. That's an example of a constitutional amendment and the impact that it has on our Mm statutes. And guess what? Nobody even noticed it. So this is how insidious what we're dealing with is happening and I'll give you another hint if you look at rule 84 in the senate there's still language that says freeman you know what it refers to this upcoming general referendum mm-hmm. so and I say all that it sounds really boring I know to the listeners but what oh, it, our it,
1: listeners are very used to this kind of detail it's fine
2: but what, but what it what it illustrates is is our inability to be able to forecast what a constitutional amendment is actually going how it's going to really impact us. I think we we become way too microwave as a, as a society. And what we think is is that we're supposed to be able to go and change our constitution and see the next day impact. So we're beginning to bake some of that in. Even PR five it does not provide a next day impact. The statute's already in place. Yeah. So I mean, I don't want to disparage that effort or anything like that, but you know is that symbolic? Yeah. So, there's, so there's, a, um, there, there's a lot of work that's being, being done here um, to amend the Constitution, but we don't really know what the, what, the, what the long-term effect is going to be. And I'm OK with that as long as we're talking about abolishing slavery. If we were talking about something else, I would have, I'd be super, super leery right now. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you say, well, if we abolish slavery, what's the, uh, what's the economic implications? You know, uh, we, we need to be able to do a risk management analysis and make a determination as to whether or not it's worth our, you know, you know what I mean? So it kind of comes down to that. But moreover, um, I think it's, you know, it's, we got to understand that you know, when they wrote this constitution and put that language in there in 1777, that it would take hundreds of years uh, to, to, to bring us to a point right now to, to, to where we can see the extent to which this document is impacting us uh, today. Uh, so short answer, we've never been a state without constitutional slavery. We've never been a nation 13th Amendment Exception Clause, except for the punishment of a duly convicted crime. We've never been a nation without constitutional slavery. It's impossible for us to determine where this is gonna take us. But I'm confident that if we're saying that slavery is prohibited, it's probably in the right direction. I, I, I appreciate
1: that and absolutely agree. And for listeners who want to dive in a little bit into the myths about um, folks who were enslaved in Vermont, mm. or, you know, at this time in history, or some of the myths um, later on with how involved or not involved in the Underground Railroad we might've been here, I really recommend Amani Whitfield, Dr. Amani Whitfield's work, um, particularly the problem of slavery in early Vermont, if you want to dive into some incredibly well-researched and very um, compelling writing.
2: Did he leave us? I, I heard he went to Calgary or something like that. Well, he's
1: from Canada, so he went oh, back. Yes, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah. you know, he did his work while he
0: was here. Yeah. He
2: could read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he could read. Yes. Yeah. I think
1: we have to go to a break. Is that
0: what we, you do? Have- we do. Um, but I want to thank you so much, Reverend Hughes, for diving into all the interconnectedness of our Constitution. Because one thing that really amazes me about the, the Constitution and a lot of what we, we try to work on in policy is how much of it is so layered and we so, and how do I want to put this, so often we have practices and traditions and we go about our business and we haven't actually kind of gone back to the root of what we're working from or what has influenced us or that like initial intention and asked, like, are we are we living what we think our intentions actually are? And so I really thank you for for diving into to that um, all that interconnectedness. I think that's really important for for listeners to understand. We will be right back on the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW one hundred seven point seven LP Brattleboro. To the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who's one of, one of three reps for the town of Brattleboro, as well as Reverend Mark Hughes, who's the executive director of the Vermont Racial Justice Alliance. And we're talking about Proposition 2, which would clarify that Um, slavery and indentured servitude is prohibited in Vermont. And that's one of two propositions that folks will be voting on in on the November ballot. Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of? (laughs) We
1: need to remind listeners that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier happy hour are those of the hosts and the guests respectively, not their employer, not the station it's broadcast on, not their family, friends, Anything else, just the people talking.
0: Fantastic. Why, thank you.
1: Welcome.
0: Reverend Hughes, you started, during the break, you started saying some really wonderful things. And Emily was like, and I were like, no, 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 let's save it for the broadcast. And you started talking about what are people willing to hear? Mm. And I would love if you would dive back into that again, because you've been, you know, your alliance has been working on this issue for many, many years getting this language amended. And so I bet you have had many conversations with many people who have been coming to this, this conversation at very different points in their life. That's true,
2: true. And, you know, the thing is, is that, again, we've been working in the area of addressing systemic racism. You may remember R113, which is the... Um, the joint resolution declaring racism as a public health emergency uh, that came from our legislature. Quiet as a mouse. It's like there's it's it's deafeningly silent, you know, surrounding these kind of um, conversations. When you start talking about uh, systemic racism, you're going to see a tie-in in just one second. See, because the other thing that we've been urging this, the legislature to do is is hey, let's adopt a definition. For systemic racism, why? Because we're having a conversation about systemic racism. You've made a commitment to address systemic racism in your joint resolution. For crying out loud, the uh, executive director of racial equity uh, has her responsibility to address systemic racism in her enabling statute. What is it? So there's so there's this ongoing work that we're doing. Uh, to address this political and economic divide along racial lines, now the institution of slavery is the genesis of systemic racism. So systemic racism is the legacy of the institution of slavery. Forget about what we did as a state or anything like that. What? Go listen to Brave Little State, uh, the latest episode. Do some reading. Do some research, and Understand that everything that happens in America is interconnecting. So it's not about what, it's not all about what we've done here. That's just kind of like saying um, our economy is based upon everything that's just happening in the state of Vermont. It's ridiculous, preposterous. Uh, so when we start thinking about this whole business of uh, how we communicate things, Yes, it becomes political because there are cert- there are many people who don't believe in the institution of systemic racism. There are many people who do not who won't have that conversation because they don't believe it exists. There are many people who do not believe that the institution of slavery uh, could in any way possibly be impacting us uh, socially or economically today. Uh, the Unsettled Civil War, which killed 620,000 people, uh, and in there and there was not there was not one person convicted of treason. Um, uh, at all. There was no one held accountable, um, whether, whether it was um, the general or the, uh, alleged, the alleged general or alleged president of the Southern uh, states. The bottom line is, is that we have um, an opportunity here. This is really cool because we have an opportunity. What we can do is, is we can have a conversation about the institution of slavery. Uh, and we can also uh, tie in right now the fact that the work that we need to do surrounding systemic racism is real and present. Uh, we can have those conversations. Now you said some people, some people don't wanna hear it. Most folks on a, on a further right, what you'd like to hear is you'd like to hear us say, ah, it's just housekeeping. We just need to clean up you know, a little language here. It's, it's uncomfortable, it's archaic. It's not really cool that we have that in there. Ah, let's get rid of it and move on. And, and what that does for us, and I hope Olga, this is really where we're where we're going with this conversation because it's really super important. what that does is is it it sidesteps or circumvents the conversation that we really need to be having. And some people are totally down and willing with, uh, to have this conversation about just this this archaic language and it's just you know inconvenient and it's like, you know, I don't know how that got in there. oh that's you know, oh my god and just, let's just get rid of that and let's just move on. And and you will find moderates having that same conversation because for some odd reason, moderates in Vermont seem to lean to the right. Yeah, I said that I'm not politically affiliated. Um, But the the thing is, is that um, that conversation is super duper important. There are others who are going to want to have a conversation about what other states are doing. It's funny because when when Vermont doesn't want to do something, they concern themselves about what other states are doing. When they want to do something, they say, hey, we're the first ones to do it. Um, The truth is, Vermont was the first one uh, to to create a constitution, the very, very first one to create a constitution that had any language at all to do with slavery. Hard stop. Think about it. Mm -hmm. We're not the first state to abolish slavery. We're the first state to create a constitution with any language whatsoever, with any language that spoke about slavery. And that language was three exception clauses. Oregon, Ohio, and Alabama in the Northwest Territory would follow suit of Vermont to create exception clauses in their constitutions. And then the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution would also emulate a strategy of exception clauses, which contributed significantly to convict leasing with a couple of other dozen states following stu- uh, suit in 1865. Those are the facts. So you <laughs> don't wanna necessarily have that conversation now, but the thing is is that, um, the point is, is that there are many conversations to be had. We gotta figure out how to meet somewhere in the middle, because we do wanna try to bring some of our folks to the right along with us. And I think part of that is about outreach and education. And some of it is also about telling folks that, look, this is not about erasing our history. This is not about attacking our past. This is not about making you feel guilty because you're white. This is not about you know making your kids feel guilty or uh, somehow or another discrediting who we are as a nation. It's about acknowledging uh, who we really are as a nation so we can move forward so we don't have Confederate flags waving in the United States Capitol.
0: Emily, I think you had a question you wanted to ask.
2: I want to have part of that conversation. So, yeah,
1: about, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, about right, about convict yeah. leasing, about what is essentially convict leasing that still exists here in Vermont and across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think this constitutional amendment will make space for a conversation about what happens to incarcerated folks in Vermont, and the legacy of incarceration in the US is the legacy of institutional racism. Um, And not just the legacy of institutional racism. Our prison system in Vermont, and I meet a lot of folks who don't know this, has some of the absolute worst racial bias in the entire country. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really hopeful that what comes next after this passes is some legal room to do something about substandard wages in Vermont prisons, about how folks are treated in our prisons, and about who's incarcerated in our prisons.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think there's, there's something to talk about there. I think there's, um, there's a lot to talk about, though. And one of the things that I want to be careful about, uh, and I've advised our folks, our national partners at the Abolish Slavery National Network, where um, we've been working, you know, feverishly with them, with the states of uh, we call them the Freedom Five: uh, Vermont, Louisiana, Alabama, Oregon, and Tennessee. All have ballot uh, initiatives uh, today. Um, we know that three other states have already passed them, and the the national work is is tying in more. Um, into a um, a conversation about uh, prison labor. And one of the things that uh, I've been cautious about with uh, prison labor conversations here in Vermont is, is first of all, you know, it's it's by, and, and if you go and look at the original, because um, Representative Kornheiser, you know there's always an as introduced and then there's always as passed. So if you look at as introduced uh, on PR2, you will see that we were right over the target. We, we came into this conversation talking about systemic racism and um, the 13th Amendment, period. What you get out of committee is something else. And that really goes to our moderate Democrats and how they wanna actually have this conversation. I and mean, when you look at our so-called moderate governor and how he wants to have the conversation, what you're not seeing, and if you look at our moderate uh, news outlets, whether it's WCAX, Vermont Digger, yeah, I'm gonna name all you guys, Seven Days, um, whether it's Burlington Free Press, a Times Argus, nobody really wants to have that conversation. Everybody wants to have a conversation of, oh, of, although we were the first state to abolish slavery, there is a constitutional amendment that seeks to abolish slavery. How can these two things be true at the same time? So, and, and then there's always this, this, um, you know, this, oh, the, the language was, uh, it, it was archaic and this and that and this and that, but nobody really wants to have the conversation. Nobody wants to talk about the Thirteenth Amendment. My fear, uh, my concern about a conversation that solely focuses on the potential that the Thirteenth Amendment is relevant in this conversation, uh, is is that we miss the big picture. You know, and let me tell you briefly what I mean by that. You know, what what we know is is that yes, the the Thirteenth Amendment, com- the you know, incarcerated conditions. How do we how do we feed them? How do we house them? How do we clothe them? How do we employ them? How do we care for them? The, these are, you know, do, do, do we, we take folks out of state to a private prison uh, in uh, in in Mississippi? You know, so there there's so many implications there. Uh, is that even human traffic itself, if you think about it? But yeah, human traffic is, is an issue. What about migrant labor? So there's a conversation to be had about migrant labor. And you know what? for the love of God, we're talking about a constitution that one thing has remained clear um, and a couple of things have remained clear, and that is what really edges toward what looks like peonage when you start thinking about for debts and fines and fees and so forth, Uh, and what also feels a lot like child labor. So that really directs us towards the Department of Children and Family. And we know that Black children are 60% more likely to be removed from their homes and 40% more likely to be placed in adoption agencies. And the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. So that Woodside is closed, but now we're sending them out of state. I mean, there's so many implications to a conversation about slavery um, that I just refuse to be painted into a corner to just have this this single-threaded conversation about prison labor. Um, And again, we have no idea. And, and I think what really, what we ought to be talking about is, is what attorneys and what, you know, what judges, what, you know, how do we build the infrastructure to flood the courts at some point or another? Who has the intestinal fortitude and the political will? Because at the end of the day, if nobody takes anything in the courts, then we got what we got. But if, if, if there is, if there is a, a sound legal challenge uh, to anything with, with, with a, you know, with a group of attorneys that, ha- that have no connection or that refuse to acknowledge the, the political and economic gain or loss, and they're willing to just put their nose to the grindstone and actually do the work in the court systems, then who knows where that would take us. But if that doesn't happen, uh, then, then it may take us nowhere. So I, maybe the question of what happens next, next depends upon the courage uh, and the intestinal fortitude of the legal apparatus here in this state in moving forward.
0: Reverend Hughes, I I think I saw this on the Alliance's website, but you also brought it up earlier about having a definition of systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And for our listeners, um, I would love it if you would share with us um, the Alliance's definition or um, a definition that, at least we can start working from so we can start having some common ground?
2: I love common ground. <laughs> so, so first of all, what's the issue? The issue is the legacy of slavery. Wealth disparities, cultural disempowerment, adverse racial disparities in housing, education, employment, health services access, transportation, economic development, the justice system, uh, cultural erasure and appropriation. Directly and indirectly, they affect the health of all of us, but also the wellness of black folks and individuals in our communities as well. Systemic racism threatens economic development. It plays into um, even our own democracy, if you think about it. What what we're seeing right now, racism is bad for democracy. Mm -hmm. It's bad for the Republic. If you take a look around, if folks would wake up and look around, they would see that racism is bad. And and we're not Mm -hmm. talking about just overt racism. We're talking about systemic nature. Right. It jeopardizes the social health and wellness of every Vermonter. First of all, we got to agree upon that. Now, if you pick up your uh, Racist America book uh, by Joe Fagan and Kimberly Ducey, Racist America Roots, Current Realities and Future Reparations, there are many definitions of systemic racism. Um, we We chose this one because it's comprehensive. Also, Joe's written about 57 other books on the subject old white guy out of Texas. But this is what he says. He says that systemic racism involves both the deep structures and the surface structures of racial oppression. It includes the complex array of anti-Black practices, the unjustly gained political economic power of whites, the continuing economic and other resource inequalities along racial lines and the emotion laden racist framing created by whites to maintain and rationalize their privilege and power. Uh, systemic racism thus encompasses the dominated white racial frame with its white racist attitudes ideologies, emotions, images and narratives as well as the discriminatory actions and institutions flowing out of and linked to that frame. This racism is a material, social and ideological reality and indeed systemic which means that the racist reality is manifested in all major institutions so that's the definition that we uh, adopted that we've been going with and that's what we've been using in in all of the work that we've been doing notice though uh, which is really super duper important because the the challenge with you know talking about systemic racism is of course you know white people as soon as you start bring it up you know you got to wait all you got to do is set your clock and it's like five minutes it's like but I'm not a racist stop it Nobody asks you that, okay? So that the thing about having that conversation about systemic racism is, is you know, this whole um, cognitive dissonance that white folks have. Um, you know, there's two points. One is is there's this natural tendency to want to push back and defend, or to say, uh, but not me. And even in the work and how we do the work, we it may not be it may not be communicated. But there's this tendency, if you ever look around, when you're in your cir- circle, whether it's your, your racial equity group, or your inclusion and belonging group, or your EIEIO, whatever name that y'all are giving y'all's group, the group of the week, or whatever, um, that, that y- y'all are sitting around going, well, those guys over there, those guys over there, and those guys over there, because nobody really wants to turn inward and say, God, I got some work to do. Mm-hmm. you know. The, the second thing that I, I want to just flag about it is, is its insidiousness, the fact that it lives everywhere. Systemic racism, what that means is it's every system, which is really, really important. And the reason why it's important is, is when you start getting gas like CRT, it's not a theory, first of all, not anymore. It was a theory in 1968 at Harvard with the, when those Black folks was, was talking about it, hey, maybe, <laughs> Maybe we're being impacted across the entire criminal justice system. Maybe maybe it's not just the police. Maybe it's the judges. It could be the state's attorney's offices. It could be the Defender General's offices. It could be corrections and so on and so forth. Maybe it was a theory then. And, and when you you said you were on our website, you, you start to look at the numbers. How could it be that, you know, I gave you the statistics on the youth But did you know only 14 black, 13 black folks own homes in in Burlington, 13 homes? Did you know only 0.2 percent of farmland was in black hands in Vermont? Do you you know that one in 14 black men are incarcerated in Vermont? And the list goes on and on. I'm 50 percent more likely to be discriminated against when I go to rent a house here. Okay, Mm -hmm. and I can go on and on and on and on and on. How could all of those things be true and at the same time? Is it lemony snickets? I mean, just unlucky? Are we just not as clever as everybody else? So, and and how could that, how can all of that be happening in the wake of an unsettled civil war? Um, where we know that at the heart of it was racism. We know that most black people are poor, despite the fact that most poor people are white. All of this stuff kind of goes together. So, why would it be that we would have that we would want to sit down? and take the bait and say, no, we're not teaching that in our schools. Well, you damn well ought to be. And so the, the thing about uh, systemic racism is, it, what it does is it counters any CRT conversation anybody wants to have anyway. Because to to take the bait on a CRT conversation, um, what it suggests is, is that there is no systemic racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, but because we know that there is, um then there you have it um that that conversation is moot when somebody starts talking about teaching our kids you know the the response is is look get over yourself you know you're just teaching kids how the world works right exactly but the the point is is your kids are not only taught in school Mm -hmm. you know they're socialized at home and i'm hoping you're continuing their education at home and if that contradicts with reality then don't bring it to our school board thank you very much have a nice day um, because systemic racism is real, uh, your CRT argument is bogus. Uh, keep it moving. So there, there's. So I think part of this is, is the fact that we don't. We also don't have enough folks who are allegedly on the left who's willing to dig their heels in and stand up and have that conversation. You um, know, this is all about the the definition of systemic racism. We don't have enough folks who are who are allegedly white allies who are willing. To talk to their people, even in their now. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about both of y'all. Um, and and the reason why I can say that confidently is because what makes you so exceptional? What makes any white people so exceptional that they would be you know, all you know, all of a sudden the person that's actually having a conversation with that uncle, that's actually having a conversation with that husband, that's really having that conversation with those kids and say, Stop it. you know, so this this is where. Um, This is where um, the rubber meets the road in the work that we're doing. This is when, because again, it was created by political and economic power. It is perpetuated by political and economic power. And at the micro level, that is your social status and your economic viability, yours. And that is why you don't have those conversations. And that is why you don't do your job. And for those who are watching, um, the question is, is what are you willing to risk? What are you willing to let go of? Why are you so afraid that you may not gain something if you speak out? And why are you so afraid that you may lose something if you speak out? And, the reason, and when you ask yourself why we continue in what we're continuing to, um, to uh, per- perpetuate, then first look in the mirror. Uh, so because I don't know any white people who have never silently witnessed Black oppression. And I don't know any white people who don't have somebody in their family, if it's not them, that overtly contributes to it, period. So that is systemic racism. And it's very important to understand, finally, that overt racism is actually born out of it. It's, overt racism didn't exist. That's, that's what exists to maintain and rationalize systemic racism. Mm-hmm. That protects the system. That's that was it was, it was it's created in order to refortify or double down on uh, the continuation of this separation of political and economic power along racial lines. So you got to create things. Well, they're not as human as us. They're not as smart as us. They're not, you know, they've got tails. He's very, uh, their men are very violent. Their women are very sexually promiscuous. They're very dangerous. And so whether, whether a person believes that or not, it was a good story and it, it helped perpetuate or to protect rather, or sustain. And now they're not folks, they're not folks some, some folks are not smart enough to fact check, to fact check that as a reality. And, and they believe what somebody has told them and they perpetuate it unknowingly. So and I'm not I'm not going to say that you get off the hook because of that, because you don't go around spewing nonsense that other people told you, whether you believe it or not. So that's systemic racism in a nutshell it's, it's a hard conversation, but we got to do it in love.
1: We have to do it in love, and I, you know, I think this constitutional amendment gives some folks who might not have had the opportunity until now, or might not had the courage until now, to have these conversations with their neighbors. That that's, you know, yeah, more space for people to find that courage and to say, you know, the state is in, the state is deeply committed to this conversation. Yeah, and the the other thing that (laughs) courage, I, I
0: think think might.
1: Have so, left. So, I'm going to give Olga the mic. Okay.
0: Yeah, thank you. So, yes, we do only have a couple minutes left, but thank you, Reverend Hughes, for going yep. into that because um, going so deeply and 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 talking where the rubber meets the road. Because I think um, for a lot of people, terms like critical race theory and systemic racism have been used so much, mm-hmm. a, a, like around them. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't actually, like, they haven't incorporated it. Like, what does that actually mean in their daily life? Yep. So thank you for for taking that time. I I think that will, um, I, I think it will give a lot of our listeners something to sit with. Just before we go, though, I want to make sure it, we pulled on a lot of threads. Is in the last, like, 30 seconds or so, is what do we want to leave listeners with thinking ahead to, like, the November ballot and, and thinking ahead to these conversations that we will be having.
1: I want to leave listeners with everything that Mark just closed with. That's my, and then, you know, (laughs) please vote, you know, vote yes on the proposition on both propositions and reach out to someone at the racial justice Alliance at Vermont interfaith action. um, To me, whomever, if you want to explore these conversations deeper in advance of your vote. Or after your vote.
2: Thank Mark, over to
1: you.
2: Yeah, I, I would just, I, thanks for having me, first of all. AbolishSlaveryVT.org, abolishslaveryVT.org. Uh, go out and check that out and be nice to each other. The, the vote is, we can we can get the vote done. If we don't get it done this time, we'll get it done another time. And my partners at VIA, they're going to hate me for saying this, but I'd rather us not get the vote done. Vote no, vote this thing down. And we can talk about it for another four years if we need to, if that's what you need to do for us to have this conversation. What I don't want to see is everybody rush to the ballot and vote for it just so we can get this housekeeping done and get this out of the way. Um, I I mean, please think about the fact that this the process associated with it the institution itself. I uh, think about the fact that the language is in there. It's always been in there. We're not the first day to abolish slavery. And it's it's something that we should talk about is, is what does is the institution of slavery mean and how does it relate to systemic racism? Mm-hmm. Let's have that conversation, abolishslaveryvt.org. Again, thank y'all for having me on the program. I appreciate you both. Let's love each other. Let's get the work done together. Let's hold hands and move forward.
0: Thank you, Reverend Mark Hughes from the Vermont Racial Justice Alliance really appreciate you being on the show today. Emily, if people want to find more information out about you, how can they do that?
1: Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you'll get links to any one of a dozen ways to get in touch.
0: And as always, the the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I also want to thank BCTV, for broadcasting our YouTube videos. Um, And you can also find us wherever you find your podcasts. See you next week, everyone. Take care.